You're listening to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners where you learn the business side of running a group practice. I'm your host, Maureen Werbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a practice management and EHR software that helps behavioral health professionals manage their practice with confidence and efficiency. I've been using Therapy Notes in my own group practice for about five or six years now, and they're hands down amazing. They've got a scheduling and to-do list that is so easy to look at, a notes template that is amazing and exactly what you need, billing that has accurate reports that you can use, credit card processing system, a client portal that's constantly being updated, security, and tech support that is amazing. You can call and actually talk to someone right away. If you're looking for an EHR that can give you everything you need to run your group practice smoothly, try Therapy Notes out by going to www.therapynotes.com forward slash the group practice exchange and you'll get two free months to try them out. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange podcast. Um, today's episode is going to be a coaching episode and I've got Hannah Jothong with me and we're going to be talking about creating a multidisciplinary group practice, having not just therapists but other disciplines in a group practice. So hi Hannah, how are you? I'm good, thank you Maureen, how are you? I'm doing good. And I just learned right before the recording started that we are in way different time zones. It's like 8.30 at night by you and it's nine in the morning by me. Exactly. Exactly. Crazy. Um, So tell me a little bit about what you wanted to to talk about and talk a little bit about your group practice itself and and why you're thinking about or leaning towards the, the multidisciplinary practice. Sure. So we're based in Myanmar and currently we're a practice that is based purely with with therapists that are focused on providing one-to-one psychological therapy. Um, But in Myanmar, there's very limited access to other resources. And as a result, we want to consider looking into developing a multidisciplinary team, including speech and language therapists and occupational therapists, Because at the moment with our clients, they do need other support, but there's nowhere to refer them to. So we're looking at doing that in-house. That's awesome. How many people do you have right now in your practice? Um, We have four people in our practice, Uh, but we're very busy. So we're we're hoping to to find more therapists who can join us. Okay. So let's jump right in. uh, Guide me in what the questions are that you have when it comes to um, creating a multidisciplinary practice. Sure. So I have some very specific questions and, and I suppose con- concerns that I just wanted to, to think through together. Um, the first one is, is within our therapy practice, there are very clear lines on, on how to manage risk. For example, if there's a client who, um, who expresses uh, suicidal ideation, or if there's a child protection issue, for example, um, we have a clear understanding of how that's managed. And I suppose one of the concerns is how would that be managed if we had somebody who was a speech and language therapist or an occupational therapist and isn't used to dealing with that type of situation, what would be the potential risks for us in managing that? 
So one of the things that I typically will always defer to, one would be talking to an employment attorney. Um, One of the things that I noticed when bringing on other disciplines is that there are certain things that, one, I don't know about that discipline and and how to navigate around there. And once you you hire someone that is outside of your discipline and you, you work collaboratively with them to get to know some of the nuances of their um, of their discipline and kind of how it works to work with clients under their realm, you get a little bit more uh, comfortable with it. But the, mm-hmm. in the beginning, the, what I always kind of lean heavily on is my employment attorney and we go over, um, you know, my employment attorney goes over everything on the legal end in terms of going, talking to their licensing boards, um, getting all of the important uh, legal considerations thought through and written out. And then we add that to our employee manual. So she does a really good job at making sure that we have all of our bases covered on that legal sense, not just in terms of employment itself, but like what we need to know about having someone of that discipline under our umbrella. Um, And so that would be my, my first suggestion is an employment attorney can really help you not only just have a contract or an offer letter that's appropriate for that person, but also if they're a good employment attorney, they, they'll be looking up the, um, the ethics and the, your, their licensing board to make sure that you're able to provide the support that they need um, and that you know what that means for you as an employer to have that kind of discipline in your practice. Um, and, but then I guess I want to move then into what your question specifically was about, which is mm-hmm. um, how to have them in your practice when they might not be used to um, some of the policies and procedures that go around being a mental health clinician. And yeah. um, one of the things that's really helped us out is having an onboarding coordinator. So we have someone who is well-versed, who's been a therapist in our practice for a really long time, who supports every new hire, even if it is not a therapist. Um, they go over policies and procedures, simple things like how to use our EHR, um, who to go to for what kind of questions. But really for those first 90 days, that person is there to, um, to help them navigate the nuances of being in our practice specifically. And so when things like um, a crisis happens, that onboarding coordinator is there to be able to support them. And if they're a part of it, obviously support them through that process um, and make sure that we're us as the, me as the owner or my clinical director are um able to also then support them as well. And do they, if, for example, if that, if it was after those 90 days, say within six months, how is it then up to that individual therapist to then manage that? Or do you have then a supervisor? Yep. So we have a supervisor, we have multiple locations. So we have a supervisor in each location and then we have a clinical director too, who manages Mm -hmm. the site supervisors. So after those first 90 days, the supervisor um, would be the person that, that the clinician goes to or the provider goes to if, if there's ever an issue that they need to talk through. Um, obviously, if you only have one location, you don't need supervisors and clinical directors, so it could be one or the other that's providing that um, clinical directive. Mm-hmm. Um, in our pra- practice, it's just that we have both because we have multiple locations and our clinical director can't support all three locations, all of the clinicians and all of them. Sure. That would be a lot of work. That would be. So I, I, I guess I, guess I want to ask a question. So you're mentioning, um, you're asking about 
if there's a crisis that happens, um, how would the other discipline, whether that's a speech therapist or an occupational therapist, um, kind of navigate that? And my, mm-hmm. uh, there's aside from what we are kind of brought up already, one of the things I would think about is who you're bringing on as a speech therapist or an occupational therapist. Because if you bring someone on that's uh, been doing this in private practice or has been doing this in an outpatient setting, they're probably going to have enough experience in their realm to know how to navigate that stuff. Um, or were you planning on bringing someone new on board who's you know freshly graduated um, who might not know um, how to kind of navigate those things? Is that kind of where you were leaning towards? Yes, exactly. Leaning more towards somebody who hasn't necessarily had that much experience in doing that, plus also not having done it in a context here in Myanmar, um, which also adds another another realm to it that they are not familiar with the context. Yeah. So my my thought would be that if you could put together, and I know there's only a handful of you right now, um, you had said four people total, um, and I don't know how you have it structured right now in terms of um, if, if it's just you in a leadership position or if there's mm-hmm. anyone else in your practice that's also playing any sort of leadership role at this point. Um, but my assumption would be that if, it, let's say it's just you, that mm-hmm. either you or at the point when you hire someone who's doing another discipline, that you'd be bringing either someone else on if you don't have the time or you're doing providing that support and I would say those first those first six months to a year that you're just doing more of the hand holding with that person until they get acquainted with um, the nuances of of your practice and what it means to be, you know, practicing in your practice. Mm-hmm. So bringing on somebody, you meaning the the speech and language therapist or occupational therapist or the alternative therapist? Yes, meaning when you bring that person on, that for the first six months to a year, either you would be providing mm-hmm. more of that handholding or mm-hmm. if at that point you have someone else in a leadership position like a clinical director or whatnot. I'm not sure what direction you plan on going in terms of yeah. kind of leading the practice but and how large you're planning on getting. But there might be a point where I was at four clinicians when I brought on my clinical director because I was like, I can't do it all. Um, yeah. And there were, there were a lot of other aspects that I wanted to be able to um, kind of do. Um, mm-hmm. aside from supervising clinicians. So I'm not sure yeah. what your plans were in, in that sense. Yes, I'm definitely hoping to, to bring somebody on who could do more of, of that role. I, I suppose also one of, one of the challenges is just working in this context. People tend to stay in country for about two years. Uh-huh. Um, so you do spend a lot of time training people up and then they move on to another country. Yeah. Um, after that period of time, I'm not sure how it's, it's a little bit separate, but how you've managed that in the past with people. So um, I, I am in Chicago, so it's not as common that people are, are coming and going for the reasons that you're bringing up. Um, but we do have uh, something similar in that in our administrative capacity, um, people tend to stay just a couple of years. And one of the things that I've done is switch my, um, because I have leadership position in the admin position as well, someone who leads all the admin. And um, what I found was that I first had to shift my thinking because we, in private practice, and I know in these Facebook groups, you'll see it too, is, you know, people are wanting their clinicians or their 
staff of any kind to stay, you know, how can I get my clinicians to stay forever? How can I not, Mm -hmm. you know, get them to stay longer than a year or two years? And I really um, sort of shifted, at least when it came to the admin stuff, um, because I realized that it's um, not very common for admin to stay a million years. You could get Mm -hmm. that unicorn of a person who um, stays 20 years in your practice and does your admin and that would be, that's awesome. But for the most part, people are staying typically a couple of years and then moving on. And I sort of shifted my perspective of what I was expecting from that position to saying, if I could find someone who stays two years, I'm okay with going through the work of having like six months of training them, knowing that I'll have someone really, really good for another year and a half after they've been trained. Um, And that made a big difference in terms of just my overall expectations for that position. I think if you're in a place where you're searching for someone who's going to be lifelong or searching for someone who's going to stay a really long time, you'll be chronically disappointed and you'll feel resentful that you have to keep training people. Um, So I guess that would be my first suggestion is I, if, if that is the case in your country, because people tend to stay for a couple of years and then, and then move to a different country, there's Mm -hmm. not much you can do to change that except maybe change your perspective. Another thing that um, worked for me was I looked at what kinds of people tended to stay longer. So I don't know if that's something that you can do too, but for, for my admin position, for example, I noticed that, um, at first I was looking for, you know, stay at home moms, people who needed, um, just a little bit of extra money. I thought, you know, they're going to, they, they're going to be around more cause they're not, um, they're not looking for another job or they're not looking for something full time. Um, but what I ended up finding was that they tended to either not be fully invested because they, you know, were at home with their children or they, um, were less, wanting to, you know, do all the work and kind of put the work second to, um, parenting, um, which it, which just was, didn't work that well when we needed things to be done at a certain amount of time. And so what I found was that, um, people who were in grad school were the people that stayed for two years, typically through Mm -hmm. all of grad school. They're really eager because they, um, got to work in a place where they could learn, what they're going to grad school for. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do. So we know that they're going to leave after they graduate. They're not going to be an admin forever because once they get their license, they're going to want to be a therapist. But we found that they had Mm -hmm. all of the, they ticked off everything else except for us knowing that they were going to stay with us forever. And so that was kind of that middle ground that we, that we had when it came to this admin position. So I don't know if there's something similar that you can do in terms of looking at what people, what kinds of people, um, typically stay at least two years, um, and mm-hmm. then maybe set your standard that it, two years for you is six, is is good. It's like a check on the on the right side of the box. That's a fantastic idea. I think you know it definitely um, it can create a sense of oh uh, frustration of oh I'm going to spend you know six months three years supporting somebody and but then mm-hmm. they're only around for a year and, and then they go and I understand that because there's things going on outside of, of uh, living in, in this country, but at the same time, you, you recognize there is a lot of time that goes in. So I think, you know, shifting that perspective is really helpful whilst also balancing yeah. that with looking at what type of people do tend to, to stay longer. Yeah. I found that that just, um, worked, it worked best for me when, um, 
when I felt like there was a point where I felt like, oh my gosh, I just can't, I don't want to train another admin person again. Um, And then like, what can I do? Where can I find the one that will stay forever? And then I realized, you know, this, this is just kind of, kind of like the seasons. This is just the way it is. Um, And shifting that, that mind frame sort of helped. The other challenge I'm just thinking about in, in relation to bringing on other types of, of therapists is the pricing differences and how that can be managed. I, I've seen in other practices who do have multidisciplinary practices, they have pricing differences between the types of therapists. So speech and language therapists and occupational therapists or mental health therapists. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of the... I suppose the question is how how do you differentiate that pricing and also what types of does that bring up certain conflict within the team dynamics? Um, and with the different um, disciplines that I have, it has not been brought up. I can I can see where maybe there are some places because of the culture of the practice that that might get that might get brought up, but. Um, I think that that has more to do with the culture of the practice than it does it being an actual issue. These are all different disciplines. The disciplines just have different pricing structures. And um, Mm -hmm. the way I've always set it up was I I would look at what the industry standard is in my area. um, And when it's a new, when it's a new discipline that I'm bringing on, and then I take that into consideration along with what that therapist or that discipline, um, has as their rates. I've had times where we've brought someone on who is new to private practice. So they were like, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever you think. And then it's really mm-hmm. kind of on me to, to do their research and look at in the Chicagoland area, what is the typical private practice rate for um, a nurse practitioner or for a dietitian. And then um, I've had times where the person that I was interviewing had been in a private practice realm and they said, you know, these are my, are, these are the rates that I had at this other practice, or these are my rates that I had before. Um, and then I cross checked them with our, um, with the averages of, for our area. And we collaboratively came up with rates that um, made sense for that person as well as made sense for us based off of the research that I did. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I've never had a therapist who's come up and asked, like, why is this discipline making more than my, our discipline? Um, okay. And I, I guess that mostly has to do with the culture and that people trust, one, that um, I have the best interest of everyone in mind when we're coming up with these pricing structures. But two, they're, they are totally different um, disciplines. Um, I can see that happening more if there's pricing differences between, like, clinicians themselves where, like, I'm making 200, but another person's making 100 and someone else is making 150 and we're all therapists. Um, I can see where that might lead to clinicians questioning, you know, why they can't have a higher rate or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. But I think across disciplines, it's, you know, this, the disciplines all have different rates anyways. And so mm-hmm. um, I can, I see that being less of an issue in terms of it being something that is a, a legitimate or valid uh, question versus if that does come up, it's more of a cultural or trust issue um, that needs to be worked out. Okay, so across the disciplines, it tends to to be that there there is that uh, trust and and then in the structure. Um, if you create the okay. if you create the culture of trust with your yeah. clinicians or with all the staff, then um, if there's ever a concern that does come up, they'll they'll come to you, but also they'll trust your response as to 
why things are the way they are. So if someone is to come up and say, Hey, I noticed that this speech therapist that you brought on is, you know, their rates are like 50, $50 more than our rates. You could then have, um, a conversation with them about what the industry standard rates are for speech therapists. And it's just, you know, if that is what it is, or if there's some, some other reasoning behind why the rates are different. Um, Mm -hmm. for, for me, like I said, I, I always pick the rates based off of what the standards are in our area. Um, and then I go from, and then I go from there after we bring them on, after they've been doing work for some time, we might reevaluate those rates. Um, but I tend to, to be pretty fair in it. And so I don't go astronomically higher. I, mm-hmm. I always stay within those stand within kind of what the average rates are for my area. And so if anyone was to ask, you know, why is this person, um, this discipline making more or less than us, it's, that's what the standards are in, in our state or in our area. Mm-hmm. So it's less about me and more about just what that discipline covers. Yeah. So it's, it's looking around and understanding what, what the, what the standard is within the state. Yeah. So if, uh, for example, you said then there, if they've been with you for a while, there may be then an adjustment in the price. What would then happen if somebody newer comes in um, who hasn't been with you for a while or perhaps doesn't have that experience? So I think this comes down to how you practice. Mm-hmm. I, I practice in terms of business ownership. Um, uh, simplicity is better for me. Mm-hmm. So I only have one pricing structure for clinicians, one pricing structure for the med management, one pricing structure for any of the other disciplines that we have. Um, I have one price. I don't like to have multiple prices within the same discipline. And so if I was to bring on someone else, I know that I keep my pricing per discipline the, the same. I don't want to have you know, oh, well, this therapist is 150, but this one's 100. That for, for me feels one, like just a mess financially, but also yeah. it, I think in terms of clients, they would, I, I, I would assume because this is how I'd feel like I, I wouldn't want the hundred dollar one. I'd want the 150 one because they probably must be better, you know? Yeah. And so I, I just like to work from a sim- more of a more simple perspective of keeping it all the same. And so I know since it's, if I move up our pricing structure, that I need, to, I tend to hire people who aren't newly licensed because mm-hmm. um, we're on that higher end of normal uh, of average pricing um, okay. in, in our area. And so, um, anyone that I bring on, I know they're going to have to practice at the level that 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 my pricing structure is in. You know okay. what I'm saying? Mm. So I would think first about um, if you were to increase those rates. <clears throat> it, one, if you want to be able to have you know, various pricing structures, if that's how you want to practice it, then obviously you can hire new people, some that are new to the, new to that, um, to that discipline, some that are established and they can fit into a different pricing structure. But if you plan on having one, it'll help you kind of guide what your next hire is going to look like. It, because if you're planning to stay in that one pricing area and you bring someone on who's super, super new, um, you have to ask yourself is, will this person be able to keep clients, um, mm-hmm. if they're at this new level and if so, which is might totally be doable. Um, if so, what kind of extra support can you give that person to kind of jumpstart them so that they get, you know, to the place where they're, um, able to practice in a way that clients need them. 
That makes a lot of sense. So, for example, if if it's somebody who is nearly qualified, then providing that additional support to be able to price them at that level that, say, somebody who's been in practice for five or ten years is able to provide. Right. I always think of it, too, is that when you bring on new newly licensed people, it's sometimes, um, depending on how the business is structured, it could be even better for clients because they're not getting just one brain. They're getting two, right? They're going to get yours mm. if you're the supervisor and they're getting, you know, their therapist's brain. Whereas like an established therapist is obviously worth, worth their, worth their weight in gold as well, but it's just one brain. And so in some ways they both bring a lot of value. A new person, a newly licensed person can bring a ton of value because they have someone who's actively behind them, meeting them every week to, you know, provide supervision. And so their clients are getting, you know, kind of twice uh, twice the support. Mm. Would that then be reflected in the percentage that they would be taking given that you are, they, they are receiving that extra input from so, the... Yep. Um, so this is uh, would be another how you want to practice your business. We, mm. we um, all of our clinicians that are fully licensed don't need supervision but they can get supervision every week if they wanted to. We have supervisors at every location and it, 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 we consider it a benefit of employment. That's something that they get um, as like a bonus or a benefit of being employed with us. Mm-hmm. People who are provisionally licensed that are required to get that weekly supervision, they get, um, for us, they get 5% less. I know um, uh, standard, a lot of places do about 10% less to account for that supervision time because it's required as part mm-hmm. of them getting their full licensure. Um, we just do 5% less. Um, but uh, it, it kind of depends on how you want to practice it. Uh, there are mm-hmm. a lot of practices that if um, you want supervision, they they um, take a certain, they give you like 5 or 10% less. Um, we typically, we do it for all of our fully licensed people because it's not required. They don't need to have supervision. Um we uh, provide it, but it's a, a benefit. So they, they're not getting paid any less um, for getting supervision. It's just mm-hmm. a, a benefit of employment. Okay. This is super helpful, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah. I, we have a couple minutes. So if you have one, any last question relating to um, the multidisciplinary practice, I can, I can answer that. I have one last question just yeah. in terms of monitoring the um, the work of somebody from a, from a different discipline yeah. because it's hard to know what are some of, you know, what are the standards of practice and um, when supervising that, how, how do you do that when somebody yeah. comes from a completely different uh, place? So I, uh, there's a few things you can do. One is... Um, you can have someone outside that you pay for consultative services who can kind of overlook some of the the notes and practices of that person that you're bringing on. Um, Mm -hmm. And you could just pay them, you know, once a month for like two hours worth to to check. I know in the case of our nurse practitioner, um, we had a collaborating physician who for two hours uh, a month would provide supervision to that person. Um, and we, they, that person was paid and they were, had their own practice. They were outside of our practice, but they would provide collaborating, um, uh, physician hours to support our nurse practitioner. Um, and that was one way for us to make sure that 
because I would, I'm never going to be able to, I mean, that's just an area that I'm, there's nothing I can, <laughs> uh, short of going uh, back to school to get my um, degree in uh, psychiatry. Like I, I'm not going to be able to support any nurse practitioner or psychiatrist that I ever have um, in sure. that sort of way. There's no way I'm going to know if they're providing the right kind of medication management, which is why we um, have with our nurse practitioner, collaborating physician, and we're actually in the process of potentially bringing on a psychiatrist. And in, in that case, there is there is some level of trust that you have to have in the person, which is mm-hmm. leads me to my second point um, of when I bring on someone who is of a different discipline than mine, I prefer to bring someone on that's established versus new. Um, mm-hmm. be- because of the point that I can't fully know everything about that discipline. So I can't manage as much as I do with my own clinicians. With my own clinicians, I can look at notes. I know um, what to look for, what to, to watch out for. But with these other disciplines, there is um, a certain level of, of trust that you have to have that they're doing what they need to do. Um, and so for that reason, I tend to bring, if it's a different discipline, I bring someone on who's well-established. Um, or, and sometimes, and it can be, and, or, or, um, mm-hmm. bring on someone uh, that I trust outside of my practice that's in that discipline to provide consultative services to that person. Fantastic. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, do you have then any interaction with the person providing the consultation? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With yeah. the, with the, the nurse practitioners, uh, collaborating physician, it's just, it was just once every, uh, quarter, uh, unless mm-hmm. they thought that something was up, then they knew to contact me. Um, mm-hmm. and then with, with the other disciplines, I've, uh, always brought someone on that's fully licensed, who's been doing their work for, for years. So I haven't had to bring someone else on for that. Um, but we're actually in the process of bringing on a dietitian who's newly licensed. And so I'm in the process of finding someone that, um, that I trust that I can have them collaborate with that I'd be able to be connected with just because, like I said, unless they're fully licensed and been doing it for at least five plus years, um, Mm -hmm. I, I either don't, won't bring them on or I'll only bring them on if I have someone that they can, um, get some supervision with. Okay. I think that's all the questions I have. Well, awesome. You got to keep me posted on, on who your first hire is when that does happen. I, I will do. I will do. It's, it's given me a lot of fuel to go forward with this. So thank you very, very much again, yeah, Maureen. No problem. And I'll see you in the, the membership site. And you have a good night. Thank you. And have a lovely start to your week. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. We'll see you next time.